the last couple of weeks we've been talking about how canon and covenant are linked together, how God has uh, made it so that the documents that establish a relationship with him and establish the uh, expectations that God has for his people are constructed and why uh, the concept of a closed canon, the concept of a collection of documents that cannot be added to and should not be taken away from, actually grows out of the Old Testament itself. In spite of uh, modern assertions to the contrary, that is the modern assertion, the line you will hear as you go to university is, the church invented the canon later. They were the ones who threw out the books that uh, they didn't like and included only the books that, that uh, fit their point of view. I'm going to show you actually how uh, the church, if you will, included uh, more books than should have been included. Uh, now, I'm not talking about the universal church. I'm not talking about uh, the real New Testament church. I'm talking about uh different Catholic and Orthodox, so-called Orthodox traditions, but I, I, will, uh, I will demonstrate those in just a moment. But uh, last time we talked about the Old Testament canon uh, running from Moses to Nehemiah or so. I mean, we say in, in the English Bibles, we would say from Moses to Malachi, uh, but you remember that the books in the Hebrew Bible are in a different order. And uh, <clears throat> I always say, which came first, the Hebrew Bible or the, the English Bible? Well, let's see, the Hebrew Bible. So who, who messed it up? Hmm. Okay. Anyway, um, really, it doesn't matter what order the books are in, really, uh, because you always have to use the table of contents to find Habakkuk anyway. So. <laughs> All right, so uh, 1446 B.C. was when the Exodus uh, happened. When, when the children of Israel set out from, from Egypt, and I'm putting that date on the first five books of, of Moses. It was probably later than that, of course. He was pro probably working on, working on those five books for quite some time. Uh, and then around 400 B.C. is about when we get Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah's activity at rebuilding the, uh, the wall around Jerusalem. Now, uh, <clears throat> if I can scoot that timeline over just a bit and, and bring you into the time between the Testaments, you remember that Alexander the Great uh, was the chief force behind the uh, Greekification, if you will, the Hellenization of the world. He was the one who conquered the then-known world, uh, <clears throat> reaching all the way from, from Europe to the Indus River. And uh, he was the one who uh, conquered the Persian Empire. The Persians at the time were in control of, uh, or were in control of Palestine, as it came to be called, in control of Israel and Judah at the time. And uh, uh, what, uh, what Alexander's conquest left behind was a string of, Greek military bases, essentially, and uh, Greek kingdoms. And that meant that if you wanted to get ahead in the world, you would have to learn Greek. And the Greeks would say there's two kinds of people in the world. There's Greeks and everyone else who wish they were Greek. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure that's been said by more than one Greek uh, as, as time went on. Well, the same held true uh, of the Jewish people who were spread out in what ends up being called the diaspora. You've heard of that term, perhaps. The diaspora, meaning the, uh, the spreading of Jews, Jewish people, throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. It actually starts with the, the Babylonian exile. Uh, <clears throat> the Babylonians conquered uh, Israel in 586 B.C. Uh, actually, three waves, one starting in 605 and extending to 586 when, when Solomon's temple was destroyed by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard of him, perhaps, from the book of Daniel. And uh, his empire was, in turn, conquered by the Persians. Uh, 
and which then in turn was conquered by the Greeks. Now, uh, even though there was a decree under Cyrus of Persia that allowed the Jewish exiles to return to their homeland and rebuild there after the 70 years of captivity, there were lots and lots of Jewish people who remained where they were for generations afterwards. And that's true, especially in the Greek period, the Hellenistic period of time, from Alexander's conquest in 323 BC uh, on down well into the well into AD, well into the fourth century, which meant, of course, that they didn't speak Hebrew anymore. Jewish people no longer speaking Hebrew, who needed a, a Greek translation of their scriptures, and so that translation was undertaken or begun uh, in the in the 3rd century B.C., 245 B.C. is usually the date we put on that, there was a Greek ruler by the name of Ptolemy Philadelphus. Ptolemy was one of the dynastic names. Uh, Ptolemy was one of the many descendants of of Alexander's generals who ruled Egypt. And so essentially it was a fight uh, over the, the history of the ancient world from... Alexander's death to when the Romans arrive on the scene is essentially a, a, a history of a fight over Israel, uh, a fight over the Mediterranean by the various groups who came out of the Greek Empire, all of them descendants of Alexander's uh, generals. And one of them was named Ptolemy Philadelphus. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, if you want to talk about uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus as the King James of his day, you could probably do that. Um, so, you know, if we're going to be King James only, why not be King Ptolemy only and be done with it? But uh, at any rate, uh, that translation was undertaken in 245 B.C., more or less, and uh, was probably complete uh, around 100 B.C. That's, I'm, I'm being a little generous with the, with the timeline here. It was probably completed a lot faster than that, but... Uh, but what we have is the first, at least the first five books of Moses translated into Greek uh, <clears throat> under Ptolemy Philadelphus, and then the rest of the Old Testament followed uh, within a century, uh, maybe a century and a half, if you allow that time to spread. Now, that uh, Greek translation is also known as the Septuagint. Now, go figure. Okay, now, you have to... You have to step back for a moment and realize that most of the people who wrote the history of this time period uh, in our day also spoke Latin. So, um, <clears throat> so what they did was they called this translation the Septuagint or Septuaginta because there were 70 people involved in, uh, in taking this on. Actually, 72 in some accounts. Uh, but who cares about the two guys? There were 70 of them. Okay, so... So this is why the, the, the abbreviation LXX is often used to talk about the Greek translation of the Old Testament, from, that is, from Hebrew into Greek. Uh, so it's often called the LXX, so the Roman numeral L means 50, and then the two X's, of course, is, are 10 each, so 70. I'm just, I'm just waiting for, uh, maybe I'll be alive for Super Bowl LXX. <laughs> Uh, and that'll be fun. I'll get the T-shirt for that one. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, this Greek translation took place in a time when Jewish people were were trying to work out what their identity was. What do we do now that the that uh, the world's in the uproar? Uh, there is uh, disruption of our way of life. Uh, we can't get back to Israel to uh, to do the sacrifices. Uh, we're under Gentile uh, control, Gentile domination, and uh, in many pla- in many cases, um, uh, oppression, in in the very true sense of that word. What do we do? Uh, how do we hang on to our Jewish identity? Well, one of those is to have the Bible in your own language. Now, <clears throat> during this time, the Hellenistic period, as it's called, it's not 245 to 100 BC. That was the the Septuagint translation and its collection. 
the Hellenistic period runs from the 300 BC to 300 AD, if you want to be really precise about those, uh, or actually really general about those, be accurate about the dates, but but uh, uh, general about uh, what it is. So about a thousand years is what's called the uh, the Hellenistic period. Now during that period, there were also a lot of other people uh, engaged in writing religious material uh, from a Jewish point of view, <clears throat> and those th- there's two groups of literature that that I'm going to talk about tonight, especially. They are the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha. So now I'll get it, I'll get into what those mean in just a minute. So you're going to see this slide so many times you're going to get sick of this slide. But I keep I'm going to keep showing this to you because there's a difference between the apocrypha and the pseudepigrapha. But I'll explain what that means in a moment. As the the uh, <clears throat> as the ancient world turned from BC to AD. That is, when we went from the Jewish period into the Christian period, the Christians were the ones who were copying the Septuagint. <clears throat> and that uh, Septuagint became the Bible of the early Greek-speaking church, uh, even among Jewish people. And <clears throat> during the time when the, the Septuagint translation was taking place, as well as afterwards, there were a lot of people reading and writing other religious works. Now, over the course of time, as people started reading some of these other books, especially the Apocrypha, they started to to copy some of these alongside the biblical books. And they saw them as uh, at least spiritually edifying, if not more. And so uh, what we find is that there is... Once the Christian church and the Hebrew synagogue part ways in the second century, uh, what we find is that the, uh, that the Christians are copying the Septuagint <clears throat> and Apocrypha together. Now, let me just show you this again. Here's the Apocrypha. So maybe we could say, uh, there's a, there was the Septuagint translation. That was the translation of the Hebrew Bible that we talked about that runs from, from Moses to Nehemiah. That is what we would call the Old Testament. Those books got translated into Greek. There were a lot of other books being written at the same time the translation was taking place that other people thought were nice to read alongside their Bible. And some of them ended up getting put in uh, under the same cover with their Bible. And that's the Apocrypha. You can see the little, the little purple guys right there stuck into the, in, just kind of interspersed into, the, into their Greek Bible, if you will. Now, the same held true once the Latin translation of the Septuagint was made, and sometimes from Hebrew originals, the Apocrypha were included uh, with that Latin translation. Uh, <clears throat> you've heard of the Vulgate, perhaps? Uh, the La- that's the Latin translation uh, of the scriptures uh, done in the 4th century. There was, a, there was one done before that in the 2nd century. The one done in the 4th century A.D. Uh, is the one that became the official Bible of the Roman Church, of the Roman um, Orthodox Church, if you will, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, uh, when Martin Luther came along and started studying the Bible in its original languages, he decided that the Apocrypha needed to be kind of moved out and put in an appendix. So he didn't. He he, he said we really shouldn't count these as scripture, but they're a useful appendix to the Old Testament. So this is why even uh, in Martin Luther, in some of the reformers, you'll find their Bibles contain the Apocrypha. Now, <clears throat> I still haven't defined what Apocrypha is yet, but I'm trying to, trying to get you two collections of books here, actually three. Now, think about this. Here's the Protestant canon. That is, the Protestant view of canon is, I've got it in blue here, there are canonical books that you and I would consider the, the, <clears throat> the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. 
the ones, the ones that are in your Bibles right now. Uh, we would, we uh, among others, would separate the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha from the canonical books. You with me so far? Okay, so now let's look on, across the aisle, if you will, to our nominally uh, Christian traditions here. This is the Catholic and Greek Orthodox uh, position. That the, that the books that we consider canonical as Protestants are joined together with the Apocrypha, and they would consider what I've got kind of uh, in gradient fill, blue and purple together. That's their canon. Now, uh, <clears throat> uh, we say orthodox, meaning uh, oftentimes when you say the word orthodox, you're, what you're doing is you're including a bunch of different Orthodox traditions under one umbrella. There's the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the, the, you name it, there's an Orthodox Church probably. And most of them in the East uh, follow uh, the same thing that the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox Church would follow. So uh, on this score, at least, the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox traditions are aligned with each other. That is, they both say that the books that you and I would call the Apocrypha are part of the canon. You with me here? Okay. Now, <clears throat> there's another set of books uh, that are loosely called pseudepigrapha, and no one has ever considered any of those books to be canonical. So the difference between the Apocrypha and the pseudepigrapha is that some people consider the Apocrypha canonical, but nobody considers the pseudepigrapha canonical. You with me here? Does that make sense? Okay. Now, um, I, will, I will talk about... The, the reason I put the Apocrypha and the pseudepigrapha together is that they're both produced around the same time period and they're covering the same kind of subjects, but I'll talk about them in just a minute. Now, let's just deal with one minor issue here. Uh, that is... There are books that are mentioned by the Old Testament itself that we don't have. And uh, you can find a list of those. There's lots of lists of those. You can probably even look on Wikipedia and get a, a, a full list of these. <clears throat> and oftentimes people will trot out a list of books mentioned by the Old Testament that we don't have. And they'll say, see, what else is missing? Uh, you know, you always have to take a look at why people trot these lists out. But let me just, just uh, mention a couple of examples, three examples. Uh, Numbers 21.14 mentions the book of the wars of Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord, depending on how you pronounce that. You say it Yahweh, I say it my way. Um, <clears throat> there's Joshua um, uh, 10 verses 12 and 13 that mentions the book of Yashar or Jasher, if you want to mispronounce it. Um, and uh, the Second Chronicles 13.22 mentions the book of the prophet Iddo. We don't have those books. Uh, and there's, there's, there's probably 15 or 20 others that get mentioned here along the way where a, a, a Hebrew author will say, to his, will say to his audience, oh, and the rest of the, the, rest of the acts of so-and-so, aren't they written in the book of such-and-such? <clears throat> and you're left scratching your head going, well, we, we just don't have that one. It's not part of the Old Testament canon. But now, we shouldn't expect to have all the books that Israelites wrote, nor should we expect to have the laundry list that Jeremiah, you know, wrote last week. You know, if, uh, if there are books that are missing that didn't get preserved as part of the canon, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, be concerned that somehow the Old Testament folks are holding out on us. Uh, wow, what else, are, oh, what else are we missing? See, the, oftentimes people will trot out these lists of books to say, See what else is missing from your Bible that should be in there. And your response should be, well, we don't have it, so it shouldn't be in there? Uh, I, we, we've been studying on Sunday mornings, we've been studying the Corinthian epistles, and you probably remember that 2 Corinthians is not really 2 Corinthians, that 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is really 4 Corinthians. We don't actually have 1 and 3 Corinthians. Hmm. But we still call them first and second. You see what I mean? We, you know, we have, titles come later. Uh, in other words, Paul actually talks about a letter that that uh, he sent to the 
for the Corinthian church that we no longer have. At least one. Probably several. Uh, should we expect that everything the Apostle Paul ever wrote should be considered canonical? No, and I think, I think there's good reason um, that, that those hurtful letters that Paul wrote to Corinth are no longer preserved. The Corinthians are thanking God for that too, I'm sure. Okay, so sometimes people trot out these lists of books that are just mentioned in passing by the Old Testament. Uh, don't worry about those lists. That's, not, that's really not, nothing to be concerned about. But now we do, uh, since we've been having a running battle with the Roman Catholic Church for the last 500 years about the Apocrypha, we should know about the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. Okay, so what are these two collections of books? I'll explain what the words mean in just a second. But if I can put an umbrella description on both sets, they are religious literature composed by Jewish people during the Hellenistic period. Hellenistic just means the Greek period, right? 300 B.C. to 300 A.D., especially during the 2nd and 1st centuries B.C., and that they were added to, now particularly we're talking about the pseudepigrapha now, added to by Christians. In other words, there were, there were Christians who kind of picked up the torch from the traditions they had learned from the Apocrypha and pseudepigrapha and kind of ran with those. Uh, <clears throat> now, let me show you this slide again. All right, so we've got the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And then there were other books that eventually got copied alongside uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the canonical uh, books, that, the books that were translated from the canonical Hebrew text. And uh, this word, we'll start with the Apocrypha. Now, what does Apocrypha mean? Apocrypha uh, comes from a Greek word, and it means hidden things. Now, um, it's really interesting that depending on which tradition you're coming from, you're going to use this term either favorably or not. Okay, so if, if you think that the Apocrypha should be part of the canon, you will say Apocrypha means hidden in the sense that it's for the spiritually mature. If you can't understand these books or, or if you look down your nose at them, you must not be spiritually mature enough to handle the fact that they're in the canon, is kind of what they would say. Uh, <clears throat> if you're coming from a Protestant standpoint, and I think this, this is the true, this, uh, uh, the true standpoint uh, from which we are coming at this, we use this term unfavorably. They're hidden because they should be rejected. Okay, so the reformers said that, that they, we'll call them apocrypha as well, uh, because they should be rejected. Actually, s some of the greatest scholars of the early church, the Church of Antiquity, also thought they should be rejected. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you about Jerome in particular in a moment. Okay, so apocrypha means hidden things. Sometimes it's used in a favorable way, sometimes not. Uh, uh, sometimes you will actually hear an adjective Come out, come out of this. You've heard the word apocryphal. Okay, when somebody when somebody gets an email, and, and it's one of those send this to everyone in your address book, and you send it to everyone in your address book, but turns out that the contents of that uh, email are apocryphal because you didn't check on Snopes.com to see if if that rumor was true. You know, the one about the the syringes that people put on their uh, gas. Uh, <clears throat> gas pumps. You haven't heard that one? Oh, okay. See, that, that, one, that, that one makes the rounds every so often. Be careful if you're pumping gas because someone may have put a syringe on there. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> never heard that on any reputable news outlet, but still, people send it on. Um, be careful, of, by the way, just a little, little lesson from that is be careful not to pass on untested truth. Uh, anyway, there's no charge for that. Uh, but, okay, Pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha is another set of books uh, produced around the same time as the Apocrypha were. Pseudepigrapha uh, are a, a loose collection of books. Now, here's what the word means. Pseudo means false. 
epi means above, and graf or graphe means written. Okay, stick all of that uh, on, uh, stick all of that together. And what this means is that there's a false superscription, meaning claiming that someone wrote the book who didn't actually write it. So it means uh, claiming that someone wrote the book that didn't actually write it. <clears throat> now, pseudepigrapha was actually a very common uh, practice in the ancient world. There were people writing things under Aristotle's name all the time because they couldn't get their own stuff published. Uh, and uh, very often there were people who would uh, try to pass off something as the, as the work of one of the great philosophers. Uh, usually they got, they got caught. Uh, <clears throat> now, the early church looked uh, with uh, disfavor on this as well. Uh, one classic example you always hear about is uh, uh, a book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. Thecla was someone who, who supposedly traveled with Paul, uh, <clears throat> a, a, a prophetess who traveled with Paul. And uh, when the author of the book was discovered, the, the guy had published it in Paul's name as though Paul had written it. When the guy who published it uh, was discovered, he was a bishop. Uh, they defrocked him, meaning they, they threw him out of his pulpit and they took away his, his position as bishop. So the, the early church looked with great disfavor on Pseudepigrapha. Uh, now, in Old Testament times, of course, if you wrote something and it claimed to be a prophet and what you prophesied didn't come true, uh, you were stoned to death. So I would think that the Old Testament uh, uh, Hebrews would have looked with disfavor on this practice as well. Okay, so uh, what we're talking about, though, when we talk about the Pseudepigrapha is... Uh, books like, for instance, The Testament of Abraham, in which the, the work purports to be the work of Abraham. Abraham saying, I'm looking down the corridors of history, and here's what I see. And, and then he, he would uh, say a lot of things that happened in the second century uh, B.C., and, and people would think, see, you prophesied it back then. Uh, <clears throat> of course, all of this literature produced... Uh, at a time when the people who supposedly had produced it were long since dead. The, the Testaments, you have a whole group of books called the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, in which each of the Twelve Patriarchs give their testimony about what is going to happen in the future. Uh, there's, even, there's even a book called First Enoch, in which Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesies about all of human history lying ahead of him. Okay, so um, let's distinguish between Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha once again. The Apocrypha uh, on one side, the Pseudepigrapha on the other. Uh, the Apocrypha actually is talking about a specific collection of books. I'll, I'll uh, show you the names of those. They're about between 13 and 18, depending on what you count as a book. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the Pseudepigrapha, on the other hand, is rather open-ended, uh, mostly because I think they're still discovering these. Uh, they're finding these uh, uh, manuscripts in various places and uh, discovering more um, uh, literary forgeries, if you will. Uh, some of these, by the way, we've known about for a long time because the early church writers uh, will mention them in passing and say, isn't that funny, so-and-so says that there's a testament of Abraham. And then, well, we find it some sometime later. Now, the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha are both produced around the same period of time. Uh, the Apocrypha between 300 B.C. or so and A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. The Pseudepigrapha from about 250 B.C. to A.D. 200, so on into the cusp of the 3rd century. Now, the key difference between these two groups of books is that some claim canonical status uh, for the Apocrypha and uh, the Pseudepigrapha have absolutely no claim. No one thinks that the Testament of Abraham really came from Abraham. Now, uh, what, what do these collections uh, sort of look like? What's in them? Um, uh, if we could just very generically categorize them, they are 
people sort of reflecting on what was going on in the Old Testament and writing expansions to it. So there's a lot of expansions to the book of Daniel. There's expansions to the book of Esther. There are these testaments that I've mentioned before. And then there's uh, apocalyptic visions. Uh, <clears throat> Enoch is one of those. Uh, uh, Ezra is supposedly another person who has uh, apocalyptic visions. Uh, there's wisdom literature kind of paralleling the Proverbs. Uh, there are prayers and psalms among this, uh, 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 in this collection of books. Psalm 151, for instance, uh, often counted among the Apocrypha. Uh, <clears throat> there are some books, by the way, who, uh, like Pluto, have lost their planetary status. There are some, uh, you know, you've heard that the scientists have said now Pluto isn't really a planet. Um, there, there are a few that used to be considered part of the Apocrypha who have been kicked over into the Pseudepigrapha now. Um, <clears throat> uh, four Ezra is one of those. Uh, and the poor prayer of Manasseh didn't survive the cut either, even for the Apocrypha. Um, so here it is again. Uh, so we have the Greek translation was done. The Apocrypha were written around the same time this translation was in, in progress. And this particular set of books, now, I, the, the, the number of the boxes here don't, don't, isn't really significant. But when we talk about the Apocrypha, typically what people are talking about really is this, a collection of books found in the three most important full Greek Bible manuscripts. Okay, now let me, let me back up for a second. You've probably heard of Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Uh, if you've heard my colleague, my friend and colleague and mentor, Dr. Dan Wallace, talk about the work of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, you might have heard Codex Sinaiticus mentioned or Codex Vaticanus mentioned uh, or even Codex Alexandrinus. All of these were produced in around the fourth, or, uh, the fourth century for the case of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and the fifth century in the case of Alexandrinus. Okay, so here's what these, uh, these books are. Uh, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus are the, the earliest full Bible manuscripts that we have. In other words, they're, they're this thick. They, they contain the Old Testament and the New Testament in Greek. But these, these manuscripts are also what we might call Septuagint plus. That is, they include interspersed at various points along the way, uh, 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 some or all of these books that we're calling the Apocrypha. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> now, the fact that they're included in these manuscripts does not necessarily mean that they should be considered canonical. What it tells us is that the people who produced these manuscripts thought that they were useful in some way. Now, it might have indicated that the, that the people who produced these manuscripts thought they were canonical. But it might also have meant that they thought they were just useful. Just like the, uh, the introductions you have perhaps in your study Bible or the footnotes that you have in, in your study Bible. How about the book of Concordance? Do you believe everything that's written in there? See what I mean? Um, there are lots of helps to the reader included in your Bible that you would, you would say, oh, that's not inspired. That's helpful but not inspired. Um, or it'd be like including, say, something written by Chuck Swindoll, you know, like tucking that into the, into, into the flyleaf of your Bible. It doesn't mean that you think that it's canonical. It just means that you think it's worth reading. Uh, and so uh, their pre the presence of the Apocrypha in these manuscripts uh, uh, is not determinative alone for their canonical status. Okay, so here are the Apocryphal books. Unveiled at last. Um, they include, now this is, an, this is not an exhaustive list, but uh, a book called the Epistle of Jeremiah. Uh, sometimes that's, that's connected to Baruch over there on the right column. But you perhaps have heard of the books of Tobit or Judith. Uh, or uh, there are, are several additions to Esther. There are additions to uh, Daniel. Those are the next ones. Uh, mentioned um, the prayer of Azariah, the song of the three young men, 
Bell and the Dragon and Susanna, all of those are uh, additions to Daniel. That is, uh, you'll, you'll find those kind of sandwiching the, the if, if you will, the real book of Daniel. Uh, so, you know, the song of the three young men, this is the song they're singing as they're in the fiery furnace. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and then you might have also heard of Ecclesiasticus. I mentioned that to you before, the wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach. Uh, you've heard of perhaps the books of First and Second Maccabees. Now, many of these books, most of them, if not all of them, were written perhaps originally in Hebrew or Aramaic but they've been preserved for us only in translation, that is, translated from their original languages to Greek. The exception on this list is the book of 2 Maccabees, which evidently only existed ever in Greek. Uh, We don't have Hebrew versions of these books, though we do have some fragments of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus in Hebrew now. Uh, now, the fact that they were translated into Greek sort of alongside the, uh, the Hebrew canon I think accounts for their, for their preservation as part of this collection. But ever since their, uh, their inclusion in the Greek Bible, if you will, there, have, there has been a dispute over whether they should be uh, where they are. Now, again, let me show you the... Uh, the Hebrew Bible and its connection to the Greek translation, the Septuagint. So you see we've got the Hebrew Bible, and then there was a Greek translation, which I think included only the Hebrew Bible books, and then there's Septuagint Plus that you find in a few uh, important manuscripts, the ones that we typically use to construct the Septuagint text. Now, the question is, are they canonical? Well, Tertullian, uh, a Western church writer who spoke Latin, who had not studied Hebrew, said, yes, they, uh, they, he comes from the 2nd or 3rd century, uh, he's the cusp of the 2nd century on into the 3rd century. He said, yes, they should be included. And uh, Jerome, uh, in the 4th and 5th century, said no. Now, let me back up for just a minute about this uh, Hebrew Bible plus, that is, Septuagint plus. Remember I said that there was a time in the second century when the church and the synagogue finally split. You know, you read, you read the book of Acts, uh, everywhere Paul goes, he always, first place he goes is the, is the synagogue because there's where his, his uh, really pre-evangelized mission field is. Eventually, even he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And so by the second century, what we find is that the majority of, of Christians in the church by the second century are Gentiles rather than Jews. Now, even the Romans haven't figure, hadn't figured out until the second century that Judaism and Christianity are, are two separate things, right? Because when you read in the book of, uh, of Acts, the Romans are scratching their head going, isn't this just about Jewish religion? Come on, guys, don't bother us with this. So in the second century, the church and the synagogue finally split. And I think the reason why these additional books got included in some quarters was because the Greek-speaking church finally said, hey, we shouldn't follow the same canon as the Hebrews did because look where they are. So let's read these extra books, and those are canonical, is how some people would read them. Now, let me come back to Jerome, the 4th to 5th century um, Latin writer. Now, Jerome was a, uh, was a consummate scholar. He's probably the best biblical scholar of his, of his generation. And uh, he was so motivated to do clear and accurate study of the Old Testament that he went to Israel and settled in Bethlehem to learn Hebrew. And so he got several different Jewish scholars from synagogues to teach him Hebrew. And so as he talked to them about the Hebrew Bible, and as he looked at his own Greek Bible, he noticed, hey, there's books in there in the Greek Bible, the Greek translations that aren't part of the Hebrew Bible. And so eventually he came to the conclusion that those didn't belong. 
And so, as it were, he removed the Apocrypha. Uh, and when he went to begin his work on revising the old Latin translation to create a new Latin translation that ended up being called the Vulgate, he wanted to remove the Apocrypha. And it turns out that later authorities within the Roman Catholic tradition included the Apocrypha. And so we were right back where we were. But this is what he said. Whatever falls outside the Hebrew Bible must be set apart from the Apocrypha. Therefore, wisdom, which is commonly entitled Solomon, and the book of Jesus, the son of Sirach, Judith, Tobias, that's Tobit, and the shepherd are not in the canon. I have found the first book of Maccabees in Hebrew, the second is in Greek, as may be proved from the language itself. Uh, uh, so it's really interesting to notice this comment he makes. He, he, uh, he throws out most of the, uh, he names by name most of the Apocrypha that I listed I showed you. Now he mentions this other book called The Shepherd of Hermas, which is, is actually a, a, a later book that uh, some people consider to be part of the New Testament canon, but we'll talk about that next week. Uh, and so here's Jerome who is in a position to compare the Septuagint plus with the actual Hebrew Bible. In other words, he was a scholar who actually went and did his homework, learned Hebrew, and he came to this conclusion. Uh, now, that's not to say that everyone in the ancient church who learned Hebrew held this same opinion. But it really does argue uh, very persuasively, in my mind, that, these, that, uh, that the Hebrew Bible, as we know it, is the correct, uh, the correct Hebrew Bible. In other words, the Septuagint should, not, should never have included the Apocrypha, and the reason it did was because of this split between the church and the synagogue. So uh, Jerome's conclusion uh, held true for lots of people, even within the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, for, uh, for about a thousand years. Now, you remember this, uh, um, this monk by the name of Martin Luther, who started studying the original languages. And uh, when he uh, finally made his break with the, uh, with the Roman Catholic Church on the subject of justification, he set off a firestorm. And uh, there were lots of times when the, the, the Catholic authorities um, tried to use the legal authorities to, to put him to death. And they convened uh, uh, right up after uh, Luther's death. Actually, they've been trying to do this uh, during his lifetime. But the, the Roman Catholic Church convened a council called the Council of Trent. And actually... Uh, the Council of Trent actually runs from 1545 to 1547, and then a few more times after that. So they, they, they just couldn't get their act together. They, they met for a couple of years, and then they uh, then they had to uh, to stop, and and uh, they had to uh, reconvene, and so on. And it's called the Council of Trent because uh, uh, it first started in in Trento, what's called Trento now, Italy. But in April of of 1546. Doesn't that seem a lot later than Jerome to you? Like about a thousand years or a lot longer? It was only in the Council of Trent in April of 1546 that the, that the official Roman Catholic canon was decided to be the Vulgate, which, of course included the Apocrypha. And so the reason why your Roman Catholic neighbor, uh, if he's following the Roman Catholic tradition, says the Apocrypha are part of the canon, is because of 1546. Not because of an ancient tradition, but because of a council that was convened particularly to fight against the Reformation and against the reformers like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Melanchthon, people who said the Apocrypha should not be, um, 
included because they never they were never part of the Old Testament uh, canon at all. Now um, we're going to talk about this in more detail um, later, but I, I want to kind of set the the reasoning for this split the the split so that uh, the Hebrew Bible is considered the canon for the Old Testament. <clears throat> and this is the groundwork for all of the canon, really, and that is what we might call a, a chain of custody for the evidence or a, a chain of custody for, the revel- for God's revelation. That is, we've, we've already established last week that, that there was this decided admission even among Jewish sources that the prophetic voice the voice of the spirit through the prophets had ceased uh, after Nehemiah and so the reason we consider something to be canonical is that it comes from God's representatives the ones who are actually authorized by God to promulgate Uh, his revelation. And if the prophetic voice ceased after Nehemiah, then that means there's no more Old Testament being written. And this is why we believe that the Old Testament canon stops at Nehemiah and should not include the Apocrypha. In other words, these books which are... uh, which are known to have been produced well into the 3rd century B.C., not the 5th century B.C. These books that are well known to have been produced later than the prophetic voice was speaking should never have been included in the canon of Scripture. Now, that same chain of evidence, if you will, the same chain of custody for revelation will come back into play next week when we start talking about Uh, an apostle having written a New Testament book. Now, why do people come along later and claim that something else is is canonical? Here's what I think is going on. In the the Old Testament canon and as well later into the second century A.D. as well, I'm going to talk about this later, why, for instance, do the Gnostics of the second century have to have a Gospel of Thomas? Okay, well, I'll, I'll talk about that next week. But here's, here's what I think, is that there were some people, um, now, we're, we're, we won't impugn their motives, but there were some people who, in the Hellenistic period, after God had stopped speaking through his prophets, after the Old Testament canon had been completed, who wanted to hear from God again, in spite of their hardness of heart, in spite of their rejection of, of the previous revelation, in spite of the fact that God said, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to stop speaking to you, and I'm going to destroy your temple, I'm going to send you guys out into the foreign nations, you guys are going to be in a world of hurt until you come back to me. I mean, after all, the documents of the covenant said that to begin with, but okay. There were people who, right or wrong, wanted to hear from God again. Now, how is it that you can get something published, if you will? How is it that you can uh, claim that God is speaking again when he manifestly isn't speaking? Well, what you do is you write something and say, Hey, Abraham wrote this. (laughs) Hey, look, we've got some other stuff that you didn't know about from Daniel's time. How about that? How about this story about Susanna, one of Daniel's friends? Okay, so, so the, the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha are both produced under the same kind of conditions. That is, there are people who so desperately want to hear from God again that they are willing to, to write what it takes to, uh, uh, to say, in effect, that God is still speaking. Now, some of those folks... I imagine we're writing uh, along the lines of, gee, I wonder what it must have been like for Daniel when, and so then they write an expansion and and no one ever, you know, some of these 
I imagine the author might have been surprised. You mean you thought that was canonical? <laughs> no, I never intended it that way. Because none of these books, by the way, ever claimed inspiration. They never claimed to actually be from a prophet and so on. Now, can you read them? Sure. Go to the bookstore, buy a new revised standard uh, version, the one with Apocrypha, or get your King James with Apocrypha, but it's probably better to do new, new revised standard because King James is hard enough to understand as it is in the, in the regular books. You know, it would be harder, even harder to understand in the Apocrypha. Go ahead and read them. I dare you. They weren't magical. There's nothing, there's nothing magical about it like that opening one up. Oh, no, he's reading the book of Tobit. Oh, no, he's going to become a heretic. If you just read them yourself, you'll see why they shouldn't be considered canonical. I mean, just, I don't know, start with Susanna. Uh, uh, start with Susanna. You'll say, oh, Susanna, I can see why you're not in the canon. Um, Seriously, uh, just just read it and compare it to what you know of the real Daniel, uh, of of the way Daniel talks, the way he sets things up. You will say, uh, you will most likely, uh, I, I I can't predict what you will say, but you will probably say, gee, I kind of wonder how anyone could have ever considered this canonical. But you know, like I said, the 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 Greek speaking church. Once they had split from the synagogue, I think wanted to be distinct from uh, from them. And not everyone in the Greek-speaking church thought that these books should be included. Go ahead and read them. Now, you know, I mean, don't spend your devotional time in the morning reading reading these books, but uh, read them if you want. Especially if you want to uh, if you want to understand something about the history uh, between the Testaments in the Greek period, read First Maccabees. Um, if you want to know about Hanukkah, for instance, read First Maccabees. If you want to, you know, if you want to know about the history of the Galilean War in in the first century, read Josephus. Hey, there's there's plenty of great translations out there, and uh, I, you know you will benefit by just knowing something more about the uh, the background of the New Testament. So uh, <clears throat> now, uh, very quickly, the pseudepigrapha. I've already mentioned so, some of the uh, uh, some of the books, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, or perhaps the Martyrdom of Isaiah. Let me just uh, uh, very quickly uh, walk through just one or two of these passages here. The Martyrdom of Isaiah. <coughs> uh, this is the Martyrdom of Isaiah, chapter five, verses eleven to fourteen. They seized and sawed asunder in sunder Isaiah, the son of Amos, with a wood saw. Does that sound familiar? But he neither cried aloud nor wept, but his lips spake with the Holy Spirit until he was sawn in twain. Um, sorry, that's a bit of a uh, anachronistic translation there. But uh, uh, the author of Hebrews seems to know this tradition as well because he says they were stoned to death, they were sawn in two. You heard people talking about Hebrews 11 and say that's probably Isaiah. Well, where does that come from? Well, that comes from the martyrdom of Isaiah. That's This is a... So some of what's in the pseudepigrapha doesn't have to necessarily be false. It's just those aren't canonical books. This means that that what people wrote in the pseudepigrapha was well known to people in the first century. Um, I'll have to skip past a couple more of these here, but uh, let me give you another one. Uh, uh, one of the pseudepigrapha, the Assumption of Moses. Here's the way it starts. The Testament of Moses, even the things which he commanded in the 100, 120th year of his life. And this is supposedly something Moses wrote. This is why it's called pseudepigrapha, because Moses didn't write this. Uh, how about this one? For Ezra 7.28 says, My son, the Messiah, shall be revealed. This is, a, um, this is supposedly coming from Ezra. It's, a, it's an apocalypse of what the future will be like. My son, the Messiah, shall be revealed together with those who are with him and shall rejoice the survivors 400 years. Um, so that's about 40% of a millennial kingdom. So what can you say? A pre-40% of millennialist? I, I don't know what you could say about the author of 4 Ezra. Um, and I'm convinced that some of the New Testament is actually trying to correct what some of these some of these people were running around saying in the 2nd and 3rd uh, century B.C. 
uh, consider what John says at the tail end of Revelation. A thousand years, not 400, a thousand years. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting John knows this 400-year tradition, but um, there are lots of people wa- wandering around in the, in the second or third century B.C. going, what's the Old Testament mean? Well, it must mean this. So they'll write, they'll write things like these. Uh, so why do we bother uh, reading the pseudepigrapha? Well, maybe one way I could say it is that we can gain insight into how some Jewish people of the late a- ancient world or late antiquity thought. And in turn, that can help us understand why some things in the New Testament are addressed in the way that they are. Let me just give you an idea of, of, um, of something that comes up all over and over again in the Gospels. Do you ever notice whenever anyone applies the term Messiah to Jesus, his reply is always in terms of Son of Man? Now, um, I, I'm taking a lot of the sweep of the Old Testament and New Testament scripture together all at once here to, to, to tell you this. But I think that Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-designation because everyone else was using the term Messiah with a whole bunch of extra baggage that it shouldn't have had. So when someone in, the, in Jesus' day said Messiah, they might have been thinking along the lines of 4 Ezra 7.28, that, that the Messiah will show up and beat up the Romans and, you know, everything's going to be hunky-dory for 400 years. Okay, never mind the 400 years. It's just, you know, a long period of time is, you know, is, is what, what those guys were thinking about. Now, John comes along and says, okay, guys, I, I'll tell you how it's really going to be. It's going to be a 1,000 years. But you see, in the Gospels, people will say, you're the Messiah, and Jesus will say, you keep on using that term. I don't think it means what you think it means. And so instead, he calls himself son of man because what's needed is not the conquering Messiah that poor Ezra is thinking about, but the suffering son of man that no one in before Jesus' day really had picked up on. They knew about the son of man, but they hadn't picked up on him. And so Jesus keeps calling himself Son of Man by way of saying, you know that guy in Daniel, chapter 7, verse 14, the Son of Man, the one who's going to rule the kingdom when God finally sets things straight? That's me. And his opponents knew exactly what he meant because the high priest said, are you the Messiah? And he says, well, from now on, you're going to see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. The high priest tore his clothes and said, you heard what that guy said. We know exactly what he means now by son of man. means God's eschatological ruler. The center of God's plan for human history is the son of man. And uh, he is the one who will set straight your category of Messiah because you don't understand it is what uh, Jesus would have told them. And so uh, we can understand when we read the pseudepigrapha what some people of Jesus' day were thinking, not all by any means, because you think about how fragmentary the evidence we have is. But uh, people will often trot this literature out to say, you see how unremarkable the New Testament is because everyone else was thinking along the same lines. You say, well... No, actually, they weren't. And this is why the New Testament is so different from what you read in the Pseudepigrapha. It's so different than what you read in the Apocrypha. Uh, and this is, why, uh, this is why the concept of canon is so important. This is why these books don't belong, the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, in our canon of Scripture. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, how grateful we are that you have uh, shown us the boundaries of the Bible, that you have uh, allowed us to uh, understand why some people uh, think that uh, 
<clears throat> there are books that uh, should be included when they really shouldn't be. We ask, Father, that uh, you will help us as we, uh, as we deal with our friends and neighbors and family members who, uh, who may have been told one thing, believe something different from what we believe. We ask that you would grant us the gentleness and patience to be able to, to have an answer that speaks the truth in love. And so we thank you in the name of the Word of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.